Well, I wonder if you, if you ask yourself the same question that I was asking myself throughout this week as I was considering this passage. What hope? Not just this week. I think it's a question that, uh, that uh, we ask ourselves more often than that, especially in our context. What hope does a small church, what hope does a, a small community of believers in the midst of a great giant city have of causing, of making an impact? What hope does, do we have of being able to accomplish anything worthwhile? Not sure if you, if you feel the same way that I do as I consider this passage. The Ephesians were a church, were in a situation not too dissimilar from our own situation. They were in a place not too different from London. Picture if Ephesus in, a, in the first century, one of the largest cities of the known world, a city that stood in its region as a beacon of culture, of commerce, of trade, of, um, of multiple uh, avenues of, of enjoyment, very much like London stands today, a city whose grandeur was only matched by its staunch devotion to its own pantheon of gods, particularly Diana, whose only concern by and large in the, uh, in the great majority of the people living, living in the city was this hedonistic, self-pleasing desire, a city filled with ideologies that are contrary to the word of God. Yes, Ephesus was like this. London is like this. And in a sense, this very, the small church in Ephesus was very much like our local church. By worldly standards, insignificant. By worldly standards, so few in number that they, they don't even count as a statistic. Often overshadowed, overlooked, perhaps on the brink of despair as the, the, the pressures of, world, of the world become so overpowering. How easy must have been to the church in Ephesus to question their own relevance, their potential impact. How easy must have, have it felt for them to feel worthless, useless, powerless. In a towering city with, uh, with, uh, with the, the temple of Diana looming over them and, the, and the, the city center, the marketplace, the agora, filled with people with, with no thought in their minds towards the God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Yet, yet, it was to this group of believers 
that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote this letter. His goal was not just to teach them theology and doctrine. His goal was to open their minds so that they may see that, in fact, the power which is at work towards them who believe, as we finish off considering last week, is a power that far surpasses what the eye can see. That there is an immense, immeasurable, exceedingly great power at work towards them who believe. And today, that's what we will consider, the supreme demonstration of God's power. If there, if there were one thing that the Christians in Ephesus must have felt they lacked was probably power, was probably the, 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 the capacity to impact their surrounding neighborhood. They were few in number. They were probably very marginalized, oppressed, persecuted. Probably their family members, the, as they were converted, their family members completely disinherited them and, and shunned them. And Paul takes the time right at the beginning of this letter to remind them, to remind them that nothing less than the exceeding power or greatness of, the, of God's power is working towards them or in them who believe. Paul is ever the preacher. I know we, uh, we, we only have his writings, but in his writings you can tell that Paul was primarily a preacher because oftentimes you find him as he's writing, he, he gets swept away, he gets uh, um, so moved by the, the subject that he's addressing that he, that he uh, bursts out uh, in, in superlatives and he, he kind of doesn't have the, the words and, and he, he just com uh, piles on uh, adjectives upon adjectives to kind of convey something that human language is unable to, con to, to convey uh, appropriately. And that's what he, what's happening here. At the end of verse 29, uh, at the end of verse 19, he says, the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And he, and he just bursts out. He's swept away. And the, the idea here is this, uh, as an illustration, is this idea of a mighty river, of a, a stream that is so powerful that nothing in its way can stop it. But everything is swept by it. And that's what Paul is uh, trying to convey here to the church in Ephesus. It's not just a, a, a something that he, the, that he says for the sake of saying it. He's fully aware of what the church there needs to hear. And the Spirit is fully aware of what we as the Church of Christ in 2023, in the 21st century, need to hear as well. And it is this message that the power of God is at work in us and through us who believe and towards us who believe. Paul says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul reminds them right at the beginning, you know what the power that is at work towards you is? 
It's not your intelligence. It's not your wits. It's not your smarts. It's not your number. It's not your PhDs and, 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 and your, your social structures or, or your social position in, the, in, the, in, the, in society. The power that is at work in the church in Ephesus in London, the power that is at work in the church is the power of the resurrection of Christ. It is that same power, the power that raised Christ from the dead, that exalted him at the right hand of the Father. That's the power that is at work in us and through us and, on, uh, and for us. It, and Paul, as he develops this theme, he's, he's going to paint a picture for us. And we'll look at it in, in three points, just so we know where we're going. First of all, he, 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 he looks at it uh, and he explains it in the, in, the, in the resurrection of Christ. Secondly, in the exaltation of Christ at the right hand of the Father. And thirdly, the power is explained by the supremacy of Christ over all things and by his headship over the church. So, and Paul's goal for the Ephesians again, and the Spirit's message for us, is that we would know these things. In fact, that's what Paul is praying. Paul is praying that the Spirit of, of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, would, that the eyes of their understanding would be open to these things. And that's what we need. Otherwise, we'll, we'll despair. Otherwise, we'll lose hope. Otherwise, we'll be discouraged in our own situation. And Paul reminds them, the power at work, firstly, is the resurrection of Christ. Yes, Christ's death is the, 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 the demonstration of God's love for us. But Christ's resurrection is the demonstration of, Christ's, of God's power at work. It's, his the, it's the greatest of all miracles, the resurrection from the dead. And Paul is saying that is the power that is at work, the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power of Almighty God at work in raising Christ from the dead is towards us who believe. That sin-vanquishing, death-conquering, Satan-defeating power is at work in the church. Nothing is more appropriate than for, to breathe a uh, 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 comfort and to breathe hope and encouragement to the church to us as as small as we are in this district of london than to realize that the work that, that the power that is at work that if we are to see uh, uh, god at work it is through the power of resurrection indeed Every living Christian here, every born-again believer in this room is proof that the power of resurrection is at work. We can look backwards to what Paul has already said, or we can look forward. In fact, as Paul moves on from this subject, we'll, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but as you look to the next chapter, as Paul moves on from this subject, he will precisely expound that reality. He says, and we were made alive, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul is, goes on to tell them, you were dead. 
You want proof that this power of resurrection is at work? You once, once were dead to God. And then verse 4. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive. He resurrected us. He breathed new life into us. That is the power that is at work. That is the source of the power of the church. It's from God, and it's the power of resurrection. Not our wits, not our might, not our social standing, not our uh, marketing strategies, not our, our, our efforts. Nothing that we can do will cause the church to succeed in this world. It's only Christ's or it's only God's power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And this is amazingly humbling to realize, brothers and sisters. God does not need anything from you. God does not need anything from me. He doesn't need anything from any of us. But he uses us, not in our strength, not in our might, not because of our wisdom, but he uses us in our weaknesses. Paul realized this. Paul, when he, when he was writing to the Corinthians, he, he says that, um, therefore, that he, he most gladly would uh, boast in his infirmities, in his weaknesses, that the power of Christ may be rest upon me. Therefore, he says, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Paul is at pains. Paul, as he writes this letter, is at pains to tell the church in Ephesus, uh, to tell them, to remind them so that they would know this, that the, 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 they, they would have their eyes open, their spirit of wisdom and understanding would rush upon them to see that it's not about their worldly size. It's not about their social influence. It's not about how many people come to the church building in Ephesus uh, at the end uh, on each Sunday. He made you alive. That is the power. The resurrection of Christ is the foundation and the basis for, our, for all our hope. That's why Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, if Christ had not risen from the dead, our faith would be vain, would be futile. Our faith would be, would be uh, worthless. We would be at, in our sins. But because he's raised from the dead, our faith is not hopeless. It's not vain or futile because he's raised from the dead. His resurrection is given to us as proof that he is indeed the Son of God in power. As Romans 1.4 says, it's proof that he is indeed the Son of God incarnate. It is a pledge. It is a guarantee. It is the down payment that we too, who are united to him by the Spirit, we too will be raised from the dead. He was delivered for our offenses and he was raised for our justification. Paul, in, the, in, in his first letter to the Corinthians, 
Let's turn there. It's, it's a few verses that I want you to look at. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He, he again, like the preacher, ever the preacher, he, he, he kind of is swept away by this reality. And again, he just uh, overflows in, in praise. And, and he says there, doesn't he? That Christ is risen from the dead. That he has become the first fruits of them that sleep. Verse 20 to 21 and following. But now Christ is risen from the dead. And he has become the first fruits of those who are, have fallen asleep. For since by man came death. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. Even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And then you, further on, you turn to, to verses 50 to, in following. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We all shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. What Paul is saying is the resurrection from the dead is the source of our hope. Not worldly uh, victory by worldly standards, not numbers, not, not influence, not uh, worldly power, worldly influence in culture. But that in this time, even in a small church like the church in Ephesus, Christ's power was at work, even though they did not see it fully. And that is prayer, Paul's prayer, that they would see it. And the second point that Paul brings up is the exaltation of Christ. And one thing we need to realize here, Paul is speaking these things um, concerning Christ's human nature. Christ died on the cross according to his flesh, according to the flesh. He died in his human nature. One might say because of the union between uh, uh, the two natures of Christ, the, the, the hypostatic union. One might say, as we say in one of the, our hymns, that, uh, that God died, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. But God in, a, in his Christ, in his divine essence, he did not die on the cross. He was according to the flesh. And that's, this is important as we come to our second point. Because this, this is very comforting to us. Christ was humbled, was humiliated, uh, to, uh, was humbled, to use the language of Philippians, according to the flesh. He was still highly and exalted. He was just veiled in, in, uh, in his humanity. And he, according to his flesh, he was... Uh, Humbled, or he, he humbled himself. Same thing is true with his exaltation. That's what Paul now goes on to speak. That now Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And that's to do with his human nature as well. He died, he rose according to the flesh, he was humbled according to the flesh. And here in this glorious statement, his exaltation at the right hand of God is referring to his exaltation primarily uh, in his human nature as well. In verse 20, Paul says that 
This power that raised him up from the dead exalted him and sat him at the right hand uh, in the heaven of uh, the heavenly father in the heavenly places. And this is comforting, isn't it? Let me open this up a little bit. If Christ was raised from the dead, but we didn't know what happened to him, if we did not know where he was, or where he had risen to go to, or what he had risen to do, we would have very little comfort from his resurrection. But we are told in scripture that he has risen to an exalted position, far above all principalities and powers, and above every name that is named. Our head, our savior, he's risen, and he is exalted in this position. And that's what brings comfort to us. Because just as he is seated there, again, we, if we look at the context uh, further along, look at what, how Paul opens this up. Because chapter 2, the beginning, is Paul opening up a little bit of what he says here. He goes on to say in uh, verse, uh, I believe, six, uh, 5, uh, 6. He says that he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what Paul is saying? To the Ephesians to, and through the Spirit to us, the power at work in the church towards us who, uh, who believe in the church is a re resurrecting power in an exalting power. We might not seem very exalted here and now. We might not look to have risen any or at all. But Paul says, but scripture says, exaltation is what's coming. Paul is saying to them, lift up your heads. Stop looking around at this uh, world and, and being discouraged by its power or seeming power and influence. Lift up your heads. Look at where your head is seated, at the right hand of the Father. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. He is exalted there as your prophet, priest, and king. And he is still very much at work, although his redemptive work has finished. All was done. He said on the cross, it is finished. Christ was risen and exalted. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father at work on your behalf as your prophet, as your priest, and as your king. What is the role of a prophet? A prophet teaches. And what is it that Christ does for us? Christ is at work, exalted at the right hand of the Father, teaching us through his spirit. Look at how Peter puts it when he's in his sermon. In his first sermon in Jerusalem, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Peter says this, therefore Christ being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out his, this which you now see and hear. Christ exalted to the right hand. He sends down his spirit, the spirit of Christ that we now see and hear by faith. 
He speaks and he teaches us as the prophet. As a priest, he intercedes for us. There is a book in the, in the New Testament that its main focus is to give us a glimpse, a vision of the exalted Christ, the ascended Christ, exalted in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's the book of Hebrews. In fact, in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, we, we looked at it yesterday in the day of prayer. As uh, our brother Rulof was telling us about the delighting in Christ, he said, didn't he, in uh, verse 3, that he who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The, the whole book of Hebrews begins with this statement. And the whole book of Hebrews goes on to expand how Christ's uh, supreme power is at work in his ascended uh, ministry. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, he has our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But he was on all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He has been exalted with all authority, and he is at work on our behalf, not only as our prophet, but as our priest, and thirdly and lastly, as our king. He has put all things under his feet. The, uh, the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians, all things have been put under Christ's feet. How much do we need to hear this in our own context? That Christ. Is supreme, that Christ is supreme over all creation, that all power was given unto him in heaven, and we don't really discuss that, we don't need to really uh, rail against it, but truly and really and powerfully, all authority has been given to him on earth. He is king now. He will not just, he's, he's not going to be king later, like some of our dispensational brothers uh, uh, like to say. Oh, he's not still king. In the second coming, he will be installed as king. No, he is king now. All power is given to him. He says, all power is given to me, this, Jesus says, in heaven and in earth, Matthew 28. He is our exalted king. And Paul is reminding the Ephesians of this supremacy that Christ has over all creation. And he's praying that, that we would have our, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and understanding of these things in order that we might not lose hope. That Christ is indeed over all things. That he's controlling, undertaking, that he is uh, di directing and, and, and restraining all things. And he's doing those things for the good of the church. Even the evil things that go on in our lives, brothers and sisters, even the, the, the seemingly uh, providential uh, bad things that happen in our lives. In some gracious, mysterious, almost unexplainable way, God is working for our good. And what a blessing it is for us to remember that Christ has all things under his feet. 
that he is supreme, that he has all the power in heaven and earth. When he says to us to not be full of cares, to not be anxious for anything, when Christ says to us that even the hairs of our head are numbered, when he says that we should not worry about what we would eat or drink or what we would clothe ourselves, that even the sparrow uh, does not fall to the ground without, our, without our, his permission, without his control. When he says those things to us, it's not just platitudes. It's not just him saying things to make us feel better. He's him saying those truths that we find in Scripture, that we know to be true in our lives, that he is over all things. For by him, Paul says to the Colossians, by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. As our brother was saying to us yesterday, uh, there is not one square inch of this universe. There is not one molecule of this in, 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 in the entire of creation that God will not come, that Christ will not come and lay claim of as his possession. It is his. He's, he says, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. It's all, all under his feet. It's all his. When all things will be made subject to him, Paul says to the Corinthians. Then the Son himself will all subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in law all. 1 Corinthians 15, that same chapter that we were just reading. Brothers and sisters, Paul wants the, Ephesians, the Ephesian church to remember that Christ's power of resurrection and exaltation and Christ's power and dominion over all things is at work towards us who believe because as we look to this fallen, gospel-rejecting world, as we look to this great city that doesn't want anything to do with God, and as we look at ourselves in the mirror and look at our, 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 our puny uh, position, we might lose hope if we're just looking around. But like the psalmist, like the sons of Korah, it's, it's not about looking around at our circumstances. Otherwise, we, our soul will be disquieted within us. Paul is, is like the sons of Korah in the psalm. is saying, stop looking around, look up. See the king of kings, the Lord of lords at work on your behalf. See the one who was risen and exalted by God the Father, who is Jesus Christ the Lord to the glory of God the Father, the one who has been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess, it will happen. But let us consider finally that he put all things under his feet and that God gave him, Christ, to be head over us, the church. All things in the hands of Christ, all the power that he has at work towards us who believe and he is your head, he is our head. All things under his power and his head over all things to his church. No matter how big those things are, 
no matter what, how small those things are, Paul is saying he's had over all things. Why? For what? You ask if you're an Ephesian read. He says, for the church. Christ does his head over all things to his church, for his church. That's why we can cast all our cares upon him, as Paul Peter says, for, because he cares for us, and he's head over all things. Whatever trial comes our way, whatever evil seemingly happens in our life, we can trust that the same power that was at work in the trial-filled life of our Lord Jesus Christ is the same power that is now at work in us, the church. Humanly speaking, when you look at our Lord Jesus' earthly ministry, he wasn't not a, an earthly ministry that seemingly was very impressive by human, human standards. But spiritually speaking, it was gloriously powerful. And it is still gloriously powerful. And Paul is saying it's the same way. Don't judge yourselves by, by uh, don't, let's not judge ourselves by worldly standards. How big we are, how influent we are, how, 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 how uh, uh, impactful we are in this or that way. That's not the way that we are called to judge ourselves. He is head over all things to his church. And isn't that comforting? Think, think of the illustration of the body. If I'm walking down the road, and if there is a, an obstacle on the way that would hurt my foot, if I see it, if my eyes see it, I will avoid it. The, if the head sees a, 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 a burning stove, he will cause the hand to avoid it. If the eye sees it, he will protect. Well, sometimes in our lives, we, we don't see things and we commit mistakes, but our head, our Lord Jesus Christ, he sees all, he knows all, he knows the end from the beginning, and he, he, where we are being guaranteed with, by, uh, by this illustration of him being the head over the body, which is the church, is that he sees all, and all of it is employed in working for the good of his body, of his mystical body, which is the church. Let me put it in another way. I'm not asking you to, to reply to this, but I'm asking you to ask yourself this question. We're all going through trials, different things in our lives. And I don't want you to think about the current trial that you're going through, whatever it is, family-related, work-related, uh, perhaps even church-related, whatever the trial you're going through right now in your life is. Forget that one. Think about all the other ones up until this point. The ones that have come and gone. Is there one single trial of those? If you're Christ, is there one single of those afflictions that has come upon you? One of those trials that has come upon you that you don't now look back and say, God was at work there. There was this good that came out of it. There's, there was this uh, yearning that was brought into my life because of that. I, I can see the hand of God, not fully, maybe, but in some way, in a little bit, I can see how this trial was a blessing back then. Did it not show you a little bit more of your sins? 
Did it not give you a yearning for, for, for heaven, a bigger yearning for heaven back then? Did it not brought you, bring you closer to Christ? Whatever it was, can you think of a single trial in your life, not the current one, of the current ones, but of the past ones, that God has not turned it into a blessing? I don't think I need you to answer me, because I think, I'm sure, that the answer is no. I cannot think of a single one. All of them, all of those trials in the past, Lord has brought some good out of it. Lord has turned them into blessings. And the comfort for us here is this. He is the same yesterday, today. Yes, you're going through trials. Yes, you're going through, through difficulties. And God is saying, the same power was at work, the same overruling uh, power, the same supreme demonstration of God's power in those things is at work now and will be at work toward, till the end. Remember that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the reasoning of the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul says that very familiar verse for us that we, that, that, that we know by heart and that we try to preach to ourselves when we're going through trials, all things work together for, good of those who are, uh, for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We know that verse, don't we? We take comfort from it so often. But what is it that Paul in that context is saying to them? He says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? He, he, he reminds them of the power of the resurrection. He reminds them that the reason why he's so certain to make this promise, the reason why he's so certain to tell the church, be, a, be, be, be of good cheer, because all things work together for your good, the reason why he can be so confident of this, look at what he says. It is Christ who died. Verse 34, it is, and furthermore, he is risen. He is at the right hand of God. It's the same message that he's given to the Ephesians. He gave to the Romans in a different fashion, but it's the same content. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Not, nothing of that. It is the power of Christ at work. Nothing will be able to, nothing is stronger or more powerful than the power of Christ. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has made us more than conquerors. He has made the Ephesian church more than conqueror. And he has made us more than conquerors. And the question is, to tie into the introduction as we finish, how is that power seen? Is it in number? Is it in pews full? It could be. Often is. But it's not necessarily in that. Consider this. The Ephesian church, to which Paul wrote this letter, to whom the power of Christ was working towards them who believed there, the Ephesian church never amounted to anything that we would consider uh, a, a mega church, a great church uh, uh, by human standards. In fact, sadly speaking, four decades later, you read in Ephesians that they were not doing that well. Was it that the power of God failed? Was it that God failed in his promises? No, is that God's success looks different from world's success? And that should be releasing for us. 
Now, I'm not saying that I don't want to see the church full. I'm not saying that I don't want to see uh, a thriving, uh, that I don't want to have the problem of, of where do we fit more people. But that's not the measure of, of, of spiritual success. There's a lot of churches out there. They are full to the brim. But yet no spirit is present. Where the word of God is, is played with. Where, where there is no faithfulness. Power of God is at work even in the most dire of circumstances. Think of the Sadrach, Mizrach, and Abednego. As they were surrounded by, by that great empire of, of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in, a, in his age. You will worship me, they, they, he said to them. And they said, no, we won't. Our God is powerful to, to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow our knee to you. And he threw them on the fiery furnace. The fiery furnace that had been ramped up to 11. So much so that the soldier that got near it uh, perished, died. And he threw them down uh, into the furnace, bound, it says. And you know what the only thing that the fiery furnace did? It released their bounds. And they were sitting inside, walking with the angel of God. <coughs> with one who looked like the son of God. That's what power that is at work in us. And that is the promise for us. Not to lose hope, but to be hopeful, to be expectant. Not to see the work uh, in human terms of success, but to see it work in us and through us and for us. Paul says that the church is the fullness of Christ. Paul says that it is his full presence that is at work. It is him, Christ, that fills us. It is Christ that gives us our gifts, our power, and our grace. And that's what we should expect to see more and more. That we should pray like Paul for us. That the eyes of our uh, understanding would be opened. That the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be given to us. To see beyond the the sizes and the, and, the, and the issues of the day. To see beyond the power that surrounds us in this great mighty city of London. To look up to the great powerful savior that we have in Christ. You see, because Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. He didn't say that we would inherit it here and now. He said that we would inherit it at the end. And as much as our perceptions may seem to deny this truth at the moment, as much as our uh, understanding, our, our view of things might seem to, to not be uh, um, equal to the things we read, Although our reason might say that doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. We're called by faith to trust that Christ is indeed at work. That Christ is indeed uh, working all things in the, he in the, in the church. 
Church, we are his body, he says. We are not his physical body, but we are his mystical body. And he says that all things, all things he does is for the church. I love that, and I'll finish just by reading there. Let me turn to Ephesians again, so I don't paraphrase it. Uh, Ephesians, there, the last verse, verse 23. Verse 22, at the end of verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. I know we don't make much, we shouldn't make much of prepositions and, and just small, but even the prepositions are inspired. He is head over all things to the church. He is head over all things for his church. And it's very well for me to say these things. It's very well for me to hear, for us to hear these things. But it would be much better if we realized that, if we experienced that, if we knew that from our hearts, that God would give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation to understand that we are one with Christ that we are seated with him in the heavenly places where God has exalted him, and that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come it will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.